1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Sufi's Syrian restaurant on Queen West made headlines this past week. First, for closing down after the owners say they received death threats and their son was physically assaulted. Their son, Ala El Sufi, was among the protesters out front of a political event featuring People's Party leader Maxime Bernier at the end of September. He was there when an 81-year-old woman with a walker tried to cross the road and other protesters yelled at her that she was Nazi scum. The young man has since said he wants to apologize to the older woman for not doing anything to help or protect her. But the family says the death threats that they and their staff were receiving forced them to close down. Later in the week, after an outpouring of support, the al-Sufi family announced they would reopen. They also decided to involve Toronto police to look into death threats as potential hate crimes. Prior to the later developments, I filled in for Libby on Wednesday and spoke with Nathan Shan, Interim Executive Director of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations, and Bayan Khatib, Executive Director of the Syrian-Canadian Foundation.
2: I was... Very shocked and saddened to hear what happened to the Sufi family and Ta'ala in particular. Um, I, I know Alaa very well. He has been a volunteer with our organization uh, for quite a while. And um, like his parents said in the statement, um, Alaa is well known to be a humanitarian. Um, he spends so much of his time dedicated to volunteering, um, shows up at all the events to help other people and to give back. So what happened to him, um, him being assaulted by racists and um, who, who beat him up really badly, was just so um, horrifying to hear about. And, um, and, and this is not the, the Toronto that we know and love. Uh, you know, people come to Canada for freedom, and uh, everybody has the right to peacefully protest. They have the right to attend any event they want to. And, but nobody has the right to beat somebody else up and to respond with violence.
1: Also on the line, Nathan Chan of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations. Can I get your comments, Nathan, on what's transpired here?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the time people think that um, online hate um, has no consequences. And uh, and here is an example of, of a family that came uh, and, and built a dream, uh, a restaurant that got Great reputation and and people, but have to shut down uh, because people feel it's uh, it's okay to harass and send death threats and 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 to be racist and xenophobic and Islamophobic on online and 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 uh, this is this is real consequences and and I think we as a community and as elected representatives and and media and so on have to come together to say this is not acceptable. You know, um, the entire family has been. Uh, intimidated and and feel very unsafe when a situation like this is happening because uh, people are preying on the vulnerability of racialized uh, Canadians.
1: Is there some talk about helping the the family get their business back? Um, That's a wonderful
2: idea. So far, what I know is that there is a page on Facebook called To Sufis With Love, because, uh, when they opened their store, their, their, t- their motto was from Syria with love, uh, because they brought a little taste of Syria to Queen Street in Toronto. So this Facebook page is a place where people can post letters of support and, and I, you know, after facing all that hate and, um, the letters of hate that they get are so violent and, and just disgusting and revolting. So it's really important that the community send some love back to them. Um, a GoFundMe page is a wonderful idea as well. I, uh, I, I'm i sure this is having uh, you know a financial impact on the family if they have to close the store. I'm hoping that we can convince them to feel safe enough to open the store once again. So I, I will definitely talk to the family about that idea and see.
3: You know, the reason the, the family is closing the restaurant is not because they were losing business. In fact, it was actually still popular. A lot of people would like to go there um, it is because of safety and, and yes. safety of life, right? So it, it is a bit of a different context that, you know, people can still help the family, and it's important to help the family financially as the business is uh, not running anymore. Uh, but it's important to know the bigger threat here is the safety of people uh, uh, themselves and online safety. So uh, the biggest support communities can give is to kind of uh, condemn this type of hate and, and the kind of intimidation the family has received,
1: Bay and Khatib, I'll give you the final word here. What would you like to leave us with?
2: Um, I would like to leave you with, please remember to uh, visit the Facebook page to Sufis with Love. And if you can't find it, I'm going to uh, post it on our Facebook page, which might be easier to find, the Syrian Canadian Foundation on Facebook. Please send them letters of support and love. Uh, We have to... Remind them that um, the community is here for them and um, and that hate
1: won't win. That was my conversation on Wednesday with Bayan Khatib, Executive Director of the Syrian Canadian Foundation, and Nathan Shan, Interim Executive Director of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations. And after that interview, the owners of Sufis reopened their restaurant and have involved Toronto Police to investigate the death threats they say they received. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's an ongoing hot-button issue on Fight Back, the rising cost of long-term care in this country. Now researchers at the National Institute on Aging have put a price tag on it. They say long-term care costs will more than triple within 30 years, from $22 billion today to $71 billion by 2050. We first went to Ontario's Long-Term Care Minister, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, for her reaction.
4: We have an aging population with rising levels of of cognitive issues like dementia or frailty. And uh, those people do need to be able to get the care they need when they need it. And understanding that we're only just beginning to age as a population. So it's critical that we understand how long-term care can be a really vibrant part of community. Uh, and communities across the province, so that we can have um, active living centers that are integrated with long-term care homes, so that we can have um, respite beds and day programs that are going to allow people to stay and live in their communities longer, but that they know when they need it and that, and that their families, when they're uh, needing it too, be able to support their, their loved one um, in terms of transitioning
1: into the long-term care system more more easily. We clearly need to get prepared for the future of costly long-term care. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by NDP health critic France Jelena and co-author of the report, Dr. Bonnie Jean McDonald.
5: What we found was that over the next uh, three decades, the cost will move from $22 billion to 71 billion. That's in today's dollars.
1: The 70, so was, Oh, the 71 billion is today's dollars. That's right. Yeah. So it's just, you just keep so it's, it's more, uh, so people understand what that number
5: means. So sure. we have it in today's dollars. And then on top of that, I think that that's clearly going to be a lot of pressure on taxpayers, but the bigger story is, is more that uh, baby boomers are the first generation to have few children, and in the past, uh, people would usually depend on their kids uh, when they became, you know, chronically disabled, and they needed help in their homes, and actually, even today, seventy-five percent of all home care is being done by families. So the really the bigger problem is the fact that there aren't going to be kids around to help out the way that they used to. And where the big question is 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 how are we going to help support children who keep doing that for their parents, and also for the people who don't have children to do that for them? Uh, that will be another cost, and we actually calculated it could be up to twenty-seven billion extra dollars to substitute for all the great care that kids do for their parents. And so really, the end of the story is that, you know, this is really time to get started. We need to start having a national conversation about this. And, you know, government and providers and provinces have to come together to Think about this issue a little more deeply because time is ticking and we don't have a whole lot of time left. We should have started talking about this a decade ago, like Europe.
1: Okay, let's go to Franz Jellen, and now the NDP health critic. Franz, what about the public long-term care piggy bank uh, when we're looking this far into the future?
6: Well, um, I agree with what the, uh, the report and the study showed that if we keep on doing the same thing, it's... Going to go from 22 billion to 71 billion, which uh, those are big, big numbers with many, many zeros. And you add to this, you can go in a room full of seniors and you ask them, "How many of you is looking forward to going into a long-term care home?" And not one hand goes up so we have a system in place right now that the baby boomers do not want do not like and that will cost 72 billion dollars is this not impetus enough to look at new at new public policies that will better meet the needs of the people and that that we could do at a better price Um, so what would you what would you propose there are many other models that exist. I can tell you, and uh, the report makes allusion to that, uh, that in Europe, they started to plan for the baby boomers way before us. And they also made the decisions to not build any more long-term care homes. There are a few old ones still remaining. No new ones. Nobody wants to go there. There are other mother models that exist. Uh, that is more communal uh, living, where people continue to be part of their community, people continue to be uh, part of society. We have a lot to learn from seniors. Um, if it's just learning empathy and remembering the past and, and learning to be respectful, uh, those are all things that every senior can teach us. And but there are it, models, uh-huh. uh, that are more respectful, where you live in a home that looks like a home, smells like a home, feels like a home, and, and where you can support people a whole lot, uh, more closer to what their wishes are than putting them in a 400 bed long term care home, uh, waiting for them to pass.
5: Canadian seniors themselves will not be, have the money to pay out of pocket for this as well. So, this idea that the baby boomers themselves can pay for it, this is just not realistic. This has to be done at a national level, at a provincial level. It needs to be a government initiative. They need to. We need to really, you know, just start working because we are really behind the curve, but nevertheless, it's never too late to start, and uh, we need to start now. So the way that would happen is, as as was said, the providers come together, um, like a national senior strategy where... The, the federal government, Staff Canada is involved because we need better data. We need more standardized data from each province so we can get a better handle on these costs. Uh, this was a major challenge in the project because it is provincial uh, legislate, um, uh, it, it is provincially uh, delivered. So it was really challenging to even get good numbers around around the problem. But now that we have numbers, yes. let's move forward with this information. How can we change it? We do not have to go down this path. There's a lot of alternative models that are not only better for the seniors, more supportive of the family, but it actually will cost less money.
1: Dr. Bonnie Jean MacDonald, co-author of the report from the National Institute of Aging and Ontario NDP health critic France Jelena. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Shocking, heartbreaking. Disgusting. Those words barely capture the reaction to the murder of 14-year-old Devin Selvy in broad daylight on school grounds in Hamilton in front of his mother. His mom says the accused 14- and 18-year-olds had been bullying him for months, that the school was aware, the police were aware, and everyone, including her, failed Devin. How does bullying escalate to murder? The accused have been charged with first-degree murder, premeditated murder. Joining Libby to discuss, Brian Trainer, who's been speaking to school groups about bullying since 2000, Dr. Claire Crooks, professor and director for the School of Mental Health at Western University, and Dr. Deborah Pepler, a research professor and expert on bullying in the Faculty of Health at York University.
4: Well, there's a power dynamic in bullying that defines it, and those who are bullying increase in power as it's repeated over time, and those who are being victimized decrease in power in that relationship. How it goes from bullying to murder is something I don't think any of us will understand, but in our observations of bullying on the school playground, we found that when one child started and another child joined in, the child who was first bullying became more aggressive and more excited. And when children or, or youth are excited, the um, the emotional areas of their brain are firing and active, and the parts of their brain that are logical, that monitor, that help them understand whether this is good or not good to do, are just not having an impact. It's something that we have to continue to address, continue to talk about, and take very seriously when students or their parents come forward to say it's happening.
1: Uh, Dr. Crooks, are there factors that we have now, like social media, that are making this whole phenomenon more violent, or did we just not know about violence beforehand or not that often? It changes
7: the possibilities in a number of ways. So one example is, is you can get people involved, other more people involved in that sense of audience can happen a lot faster, uh, and that we know that that's also sort of disinhibiting. Like the bigger crowd, the the more excitement. If people are egging you on in in your aggressive behavior, that 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 can play a role. Uh, it makes it harder for kids who are being victimized to get away from the bullying because even if they switch schools, often that sort of follows them with the connections and friends of friends and all the different ways that kids connect. The other thing is it can really, um, we've lost any kind of natural cooling period. If you think about when we were young and uh, if there's bullying happening maybe on a Friday and then over the weekend, people just have a chance to kind of cool down and to—and sometimes things get forgotten or some of it can, can settle. And, and we've lost that because kids are texting or, or messaging each other all night. And so there can be a lot more momentum, I think, from, from that. And then we also know that it means that it's just really, really hard for kids who are experiencing victimization to get away from it ever, because even if they stop going to school or even if they try to be somewhere safe, that the, the reach of social media is you know 24-7 and you really can't get away from it.
1: Brian Trainer, are we too soft on kid bullies?
8: I, I fully believe in in teaching kids how to be good citizens. My area that I teach uh, mostly at First Nation schools, way up northern Saskatchewan, is cyberbullying more than uh, straight bullying, and that brings a whole new um, aspect to to the field of bullying. I mean, you have the anonymity of cyberbullying now, and and so how does the school react to uh, threats that take place outside of the school environment, off-campus, off-hours. Um, there, there are ways of dealing with it, but that's another aspect that that is something that's new to our generation. We didn't have that as kids. Our kids have that
4: now. If you're disciplining a child and giving harsh punishment to that child, then what you're saying to that child inadvertently is, I have power over you i can control you i can distress you and that that actually is is representative of what bullying is it's power over power to distress and control another and harm another and the person on the receiving end has no recourse so the much better way of doing it is to to help develop that child's skills and capacity to engage parents in supporting the mental health of their children and helping them understand how their parenting can can be reshaped to promote the kind of healthy relationships that Claire is talking about. And we really need to rethink this because without attending to social emotional development of children and youth, we're we're giving them strong foundations in science and and numeracy and literacy but leaving a huge, hugely important part of their development out because they're going to need to know how to engage in healthy relationships throughout the lifespan.
1: Dr. Deborah Pepler, a research professor and expert on bullying in the Faculty of Health at York University, school speaker Brian Trainer and Dr. Claire Crooks, professor and director for the School of Mental Health at Western University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Mary of Burlington called to say she agrees we need to come up with a new plan for long-term
6: care. Long-term care has become commercialized, over-commercialized. Unfortunately, it's the elderly who now have to pay the cost. It's a crying shame after doing what they've done for their country. They must now be dragged through the mud and belittled due to lack of help for them.
1: Barry in North York phoned to offer his opinion of the family who owns the Syrian restaurant Sufis.
8: Here's a person who, or is it a family uh, yes. um, that comes from another country and um, instead of being a drain on society and going on welfare and taking money, they're adding to the economy, taking a chance, being an entrepreneur, and then they have to shut it down because of hate. <laughs> What is happening here?
1: Doreen in Kingston called to offer her support to the al-Sufi family after they received death threats, apparently related to their son's decision to attend a political protest in Hamilton. I wonder
4: how much good those who are responsible are doing for their community. And who do they think we welcome in our world? Those good Syrian family, people like them, or people like uh, the, the perpetrators who uh do nothing but destroy and destruct people.
1: Ziggy in Simcoe called to say she's voting strategically for the next generations. I
5: do not believe in voting for the party that is going to give me what I feel is the best deal. I believe in voting for the party that is going to give our country's future, which is the children and the grandchildren, the best deal and the environment if it's liberal or conservative or NDP that they feel is going to do the best, it's what they're going to do for the
1: up-and-coming generation, not for us. We're on our way out. They're on their way in. Frances in Oakville phoned to say the debate helped make up her mind about who not to vote for in the federal election.
2: I didn't like Mr. Scheer uh, calling uh, Trudeau a fake, uh, a fraud, That's not prime minister. I am not a liberal. And this um, line, they sure made up my mind to not to vote conservative. Okay, I'm naming him
6: now Trump
1: the North. Alex in East York called to offer his opinion on why pedestrians continue to be killed on Toronto streets.
8: This is not just people grabbing numbers out of the air. This is the result of several... Coroner's inquests into children and pedestrians who've been killed on city streets and they make perfect sense and i think a part of the problem we're going to have with it is the resources of the police they don't have the proper enforcement resources they honestly don't
1: Stephen mississauga called to say that blame needs to be laid in the death of bullying victim 14 year old devin selvey of hamilton
6: my daughter went through this in uh, public school middle school and in high school and the bottom line was the whole time was the principal did not want to deal with it the principal avoided confrontation they did everything they could not to deal with any of this um, guys the principal that principal in Hamilton they need to be held accountable for this because there I'm going to tell you at the bottom of it I know they're at there that principal ignored this and this is a common theme I hear this from teachers I experienced it firsthand Somebody needs to go down to these principles and say, you've got to deal with this. That's what you're paid for.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were
1: a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Pickering, who admitted his daughter was once a bully when she was young.
8: I don't think we're putting enough emphasis on, I think the, one of the main uh, key areas is in the home. And <clears throat> That's where it all starts, and and I think that the punishment does not need to be harsh, or punitive. It needs to be firm and consistent. So my daughter's a teacher now. Now she was bullied a long time ago and whatnot. And one time we got a call about her. It was like grade seven, eight, and I mean a long time ago. And I said, you know what? Phone me anytime, twenty four seven. And I just told my daughter, and there was no, you know, no corporal punishment. Just you can stay in this house as long as you wish and go to school for as long as you wish. But you cannot, you know, go there and embarrass us or yourself. And, and she knew that any time you try one more thing, and I hear, and I'd be standing at the door waiting and just laying down the law. But you know what? We have to look at the parenting and guardianship.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at four one six three six zero zero seven forty on Zoomer Radio AM seven forty and ninety six point seven FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Make sure to tune in tomorrow, Thanksgiving Monday, for a live Fight Back with fill-in host Bob Komsik. And join me again next weekend for a roundup of The Best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Ecock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer...